Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Tonight's episode is the recording of our most recent live outdoor story night event held a few weeks ago at Calvary Mac on August 15th, 2021, featuring Heidi Forrest. We love offering these live events and actually have another one coming up on September 19th. So if you're within driving distance of McMinnville, Oregon, invite your friends and register for this free event. You can find the link in the episode notes along with information on the Safe Families movement that Heidi mentions in her story. Now we're going to skip over the introduction from the event and pick up with a song performed by Becca Carlson and her teenage son, Tristan. They tell you where you need to go. They tell you when you need to leave. They tell you what you need to know. They tell you who you need to be. But everything inside you knows there's more than what you've heard. There's so much more than empty conversations filled with empty words. And you're on fire when he's near you. You're on fire when he speaks. You're on fire burning up in these mysteries. You give me one more time around. You give me one more chance to see. Give me everything you are. You give me one more chance to be near you, yeah. When everything inside me looks like everything I hate, you are the hope I have for change. You are the only chance I'll take, and I'm on fire when you're near me. I'm on
Thank you so much, both of you. Well, ladies, I would like to invite up Maya. Maya is going to give us a quick introduction of Heidi. She's known her for quite a while. And then we'll get to hear Heidi's story. Thank you. Thanks, Jessica. Well, good evening. My name is Maya Barnes. And yes, quite a while. That was nice. It was quite a while because when I think of it in decades, I'm sorry, but that just like hit me and makes me feel too old that I've known her for decades now, but we can say that. So we'll just pretend, we'll just say 20 because that's like one of my favorite numbers. So 20 or when you've known someone for that long, um, my dear friend Heidi, when you've known someone for that long, there's bound to be happy times, tears, crazy times, even trying to set up each other with, oh, what about him? I had this good friend. You know, when you've known each other for that long, there's times like that. And that did actually happen. I don't know if it's in her story somewhere in there. But Heidi, tonight I'm excited for you to hear about my dear friend's story because no matter the time, Heidi's one of those friends that I feel I, I have been blessed with. I grew up overseas and I feel like when I met Heidi, knowing she just, uh, we under, she understood me. She, we saw each other. We met each other at the young age of 18 or she might've been a little older. I think you're older than me, but no matter the distance, no matter the miles away, even no matter the time span, in, in all those years of knowing Heidi, we can go months, we can go days. Sometimes days feels weird now that she's close by and we don't talk. But I hope and pray that some of you here have those relationships where you just pick up where you left off, where there's no, where it's like, wow, I haven't seen you. You've been thousands of miles away and what's been going on? But we can pick up right where it's at. And I know that Heidi tonight is going to share her story and her heart. And I hope you see through tonight that you're encouraged that you can go out from here and see part of her story in her life because she lives it fully, whether it's with her kids, whether it's in working at the church, um, with her husband and in everything in her life. She is an open book. She shares. <laughs> okay. I'm not supposed to make you cry. I'm supposed to keep this really light. So I'm excited for you to hear her story and may we all be encouraged and find ways we can make little impact, whether it's just a smile, encouraging someone, sharing where you've been. I'm excited for you to hear Heidi's story and we'll give it over to Heidi. Hi. <laughs> Thank you, Maya. It's always awkward to hear someone talk about you, but I'm happy to be here. And I just first wanted to say thank you for taking time to come hear my story. I know that we're busy. I know that there's a lot going on. I know today was super hot and it was scary to come here thinking it was going to be super hot. So thank you for coming and listening. When Jessica asked me to share my story, I was very hesitant. I do not like speaking in public at all. And I just felt like, what What do I have to share? What should I share like, I just have a story, just my life. And I felt like the Lord said, like, hey, you need to share what I've done for you. You need to share all the triumphs and the struggles that you've, you've had, and I've worked through them for you. So that's why I'm here. I currently live in Newburgh, Oregon. I have four kids. Hannah is 13. Haley is almost 12. And then I have Nolan, who is nine, and Neil, who is six. And I'm married to an amazing person who's my favorite person, Nick, who you met, that speaks so many languages and it's obnoxious, but I'm so thankful for him because <laughs> he's very good at all of them. Okay, so my story a lot is about relationships 
And that started when I was born. So I was born in, in 1982. I'm the middle child of three. I have an older sister, Sarah, and a younger brother, Justin. And my earliest memory is painting by numbers. My sister was painting a Snow White, and I was painting a Cinderella. I remember it was hot. I was born in California, so it was just it was the beautiful weather. And my mom came up to me and just said, have you seen your brother? My brother was 18 months old. He was super mischievous and liked to do his own thing. And so I didn't think it was a big, a big deal until my mom's eyes just kind of showed, like, your brother is missing. So we started running around. I remember running to the front yard, to the backyard. I was only four and a half, so I didn't know what I was. I was just looking for my brother, yelling Justin. And I remember my mom's scream of terror as she looked in the pool. And I do remember the small little white thing bobbing in the pool, and it was his diaper. Then I just recalled little bits of pieces, my aunt making phone calls from our kitchen, crying hysterically. I remember the helicopter coming and grabbing my brother and my mom. And I remember my, my mom just screaming, just screaming over and over again. That memory fades into sitting with my dad in the bedroom and my dad letting my sister and I know that my brother was really sick and probably wouldn't come home. So my brother had near drowned. He had been under the water for more than 12 minutes. And for those of you that know about that, that is a long, long time. They gave my parents a 0% chance of living. If he did live, it was a 98% chance that he would be fully brain dead. So my parents sat and they prayed. They knew God, but they hadn't really had a true relationship with him. And my mom says that when she was sitting in the room with my brother, holding his hand as he was in a coma, she felt closer to Jesus than she's ever felt in her life. She remembers this feeling of a hand on her shoulder and looking back behind and there being no one there and her sure that was Jesus. She also remembers this moment of surrendering and saying, either way, I'll serve you. This was not who my mom was at that time. So this was a very different relationship that she was experiencing in this moment of horrible fear. So it turns out, actually, my brother recovered fully. He woke up out of the coma and said, Mama, and just started talking. He was jumping back in that pool as soon as he got home. It was, it was crazy. My parents became advocates for water safety, even though they had done everything they could to make sure he was safe before, but they started going into water safety. My brother's 36 now, married, has two kids that are fantastic, and he is a computer engineer. I don't know what it is. I don't understand what he does, but he's super smart, <laughs> and he really is a true miracle. Uh, my parents' relationship had changed. They started speaking more boldly to family about who God is. They started going to church and getting more involved. They told everyone about the miracle. My brother, they were on news stations talking about that this was not just lucky. This was a miracle. So my life after the incident was full of so much amazing fun. Southern California is really fun to live in when you're young. We went to the beach every day and loved it, surfing and just everything, and then would end with a bonfire with a big group of people. My life was fantastic down there. We celebrated holidays with this group of people that had become our community. And I loved to be super active. I loved soccer. I was in competitive dance and gymnastics. My mom ran me around with two other kids doing the same things for them. And I don't know how she does it now being a mom of four. 
and letting me to do all of these things. But our life was kind of crazy, and I loved every moment of it. Then when I was eight, my mom and dad sat us down and told me the worst news for an eight-year-old, that we were moving, moving away from everything I knew up to Wenatchee, Washington. Never heard the name, never been there, but we were moving. I asked her why, and she told me that that Southern California was super dangerous. There were gang members, and she was very scared for us to stay. My dad was also a physical therapist, and he worked on high-profile people, and he was a workaholic, but I never saw that. He was at every event I went to, and I remember him being part of my day, so it didn't seem like I needed my dad to be there any more than he was, so I didn't understand either side of that. My, my life felt perfect, and there was no way I wanted to move from the beach and from, my fam- or from our family that lived down there. I protested every day, and I threatened to run away back to my grandma but didn't happen. Um, we left our community of people that we had grown to love as family, and we moved that summer to Wenatchee. The first couple years were super hard. We couldn't find a community very well. We finally settled a bit, and I started to kind of enjoy the simple life. And so I was just playing soccer and building new relationships with friends. My parents saw, though, that there was a desperate need for a youth group up in Wenatchee, so they started this youth group, which was Kind of fun, kind of not for your parents to be your youth leaders, but they were fantastic people. Their home was open to anybody and everybody that needed a home. People would call my mom, mom, and just my friends felt loved and accepted by my parents. And we did a lot in Wenatchee when it came to outreach, but they really wanted everyone to see that there's life outside of America. So they planned a trip for our youth group to go to Mexico. I was 14, and I remember going over the border and just seeing all the plastic bags all over the tumbleweeds, just crossing that border and it being a totally different land. I remember pulling up, and that smell just overwhelmed my senses. I, I was so uncomfortable, and I loved being comfortable. I had never been that uncomfortable, and I had never been without something. We unloaded, and I went to my dorm room, and I just started crying. I was not going to stay there for that week. The bathrooms had toilets, but you had to put the toilet paper, you know, in the trash can beside it. You couldn't flush it. The shower shocked you if you grabbed them. They literally shocked you. And the food was not my nice little like quesadilla that we make at home. It was like Mexican cafeteria food. And I didn't love that. Um, There were cockroaches all over the floor. And the next morning I got up and they explained to us to go get in skirts We're going to a part of town that you need to, like, keep your eye open because it's not super safe. That was not what I wanted to hear that morning. (laughs) We ended up doing this day after day. But at the end of the trip, I did not want to leave Mexico. It had just broken through into my heart. I built relationships, and I'm still friends with people today. In the years that to follow, I took more and more trips to Mexico that solidified my heart to serve Jesus in a culture that's different than my own. When I tell people I would go back to high school days, anytime people are kind of in shock, my husband especially. (laughs) Nobody likes high school. No one really wants to go back to high school, but I loved it. I had a really great group of friends that knew how to just have fun and be carefree and safe. Um, The only big struggle I had, though, was with my health. Uh, I was super, super healthy when I was little. My brother and sister were not, but I was very healthy. And when I hit junior high, I started getting these really horrible pains in my stomach, and they took me to the doctor and figured out I had irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. If I got too stressed out, my stomach would start to 
turn and I would be in agony. But, you know, I missed a ton of things, but then I'd go to these prayer meetings and they'd want to pray for my healing. And I'm like, yes, Jesus. Okay, it didn't happen. And then I'd read a verse. Okay, he's going to heal me. No, okay, it didn't happen. So I just decided I'd live with it without understanding why. And that I trusted Jesus to walk beside me with it and get me through every little bout of IBS. I graduated high school that year and decided I was going to go to discipleship training school in Mexico with Youth with a Mission. This meant spending three months in Culiacan, Mexico with 25 people I had never met and then heading over to Guinea-Bissau, which is in West Africa, and going there for three months. So this is one of the hardest things I've done. My, my IBS flared up while I was down there. I really wanted to just leave. I didn't want to deal with any of this when I got down to Mexico. I was in the same room with 13 other girls for three months with one bathroom. That was really rough. And the food was not always enough for us, and we struggled with community living. When it came time for outreach, most people chose to go one place, and only four other people decided to go to Guinea-Bissau with me. And they were all women. Guinea-Bissau is a highly Muslim country. So we fly there, and when we arrive, we are all overwhelmed. We get in a car for 15 hours, and the seat is made out of wood. And they don't stop. So we sat for 15 hours on wood. We arrived to where we were staying. That was going to be our home for three months. And it was made out of mud. And the roof was made out of straw. And it wasn't finished. So we were able to see the stars at night, which were absolutely beautiful. But the mosquitoes would come. They were biting us constantly. Our toilet consisted of a tiny hole on concrete in a room. And that was our toilet shower our water was in a well that we had to manually pull up into a, um, from a bucket to shower and boil water to drink, do dishes, and everything else. The food we were served was this amazing hot bread in the morning that they'd bring out, and I was so excited. And then lunch and dinner came, and they were cold rice with fish juice. Now, I didn't like cafeteria Mexican food. I did not like this. My mom, when I was little, used to give me macaroni and cheese for any time I didn't want to eat anything else. So I had a very picky palate until I got married. I would gag on this rice and try and eat it, and I just couldn't get it down. So I ended up going to town and finding the only store that had a generator to keep the Coca-Cola cold, and I bought Coca-Cola for my lunch and dinner every day. I was exhausted from the physical challenges, but the spiritual side was so life-giving. I'd wake up in the morning to kids in my window that wasn't really a window it was just a wood frame and they'd just be sticking in their head and I'd open my eyes and their face was right there and they'd just say Heidi and just start speaking in Portuguese I was so thankful for Portuguese because I knew Spanish and so if you know Spanish Portuguese comes pretty easy and God prepared me for that so I was able to talk to these kids but I messed up a lot but we built these relationships through my horrible Portuguese but um it was amazing. Our mornings consisted of walking miles in the heat to go do an evangelistic service, and it was so fantastic. I loved it. Every day felt super important. Every conversation felt super important. But then, one night I woke up with a super unbearable pain all over my body. I just, like, army crawled to the bathroom, the bathroom with the toilet like this, and just started vomiting. I, my body hurt so much. I passed out and kept waking up throughout the night, feeling stuff crawling over my legs, and it ended up being a rat that left our bathroom. 
They found me that morning and they called the local doctor who tested me for malaria. He treated my sickness with a high dose of meds because I had brought my meds from the States and he didn't know what, what they were. So he prescribed enough for a 300-pound man. That night, I had such vivid hallucinations that I almost choked my roommate to death, literally on top of her choking her. So they decided I needed to go stay somewhere else. There was a local Brazilian family that we had been working with, and we I loved them, and they agreed to nurse me back to health. So there, I received an email that kind of changed the course of my life. This was back in 19, no, in 2000, where there was not phones with internet. And so I had not received any communication with anyone back at home. But while there, they said, we want to bless you with something. We're going to give you an ability to print off one email. Like, okay, please, yes. So they started their car that then started a generator that then started the computer that then hooked up to their telephone that then they had to like wire on top of their house. It was this weird system. And then the printer started and then it just printed like they had me sign in. And I was like, I think I want that one from my mom. And it printed it off. And it said, do you want to go to college? Write me back ASAP. <laughs> we need to know right away. I was saying, no, I don't want to go. I want to stay in this life, which seems really weird. But I, yeah, I want to stay overseas. And as I prayed, and I sat with another, my other fellow student that had gone with me. We prayed, and I just felt the Lord say, you need to go. So they fired back up everything and was able to send off one email back. And it said, yes, I will go. So I had to leave the place that I loved, which seems really crazy with, like, rats crawling, crawling all over you and, like, all everything that I was dealing with there. But I, I loved it. One thing I loved, though, was also being with those missionaries. They were teaching me things that were incredible. One night at their house, we heard rioting outside, and they locked us in the room with her kids, and I was praying with her kids, and we were just locked into this room. And we could hear gunshots going off, and it was terrifying for me. But these missionaries had a totally different heart. They weren't angry at anyone. They started explaining to me that rioting was the voice for those that were not heard there. They understood the history, and they shared why this was happening their hearts were in the right place, and I was so thankful I got to meet them and got to see who they were because they influenced my life in a way that molded my family for the future and for what we were going to go do. I came back to the States a totally different person. I attended George Fox, and God was super gracious to me because he gave me Maya, who was my first friend there. I was missing anything other than America, and she's there having grown up in Ecuador. And I knew that that God was just giving me so much, so much love at that moment when I met Maya. God continued to give me an amazing community at Fox. I was on the tennis team and residence life, and I actually really liked Fox, despite the fact that I didn't want to go there. One thing, though, that I haven't spoken about was my consistent need to have a boyfriend. I always wanted to date boys. It mostly looked like, though, putting a title on a really good friendship and I, I think I just always needed to know someone was committed to me. So when I got to college, I already had a boyfriend. Actually, the first day Nick and I were put in the same group, Nick, my husband. And I was like, this guy's really great, but I have a boyfriend. And then it moved on to where we got to know each other a little bit more. And my admiration for him grew. In the summer between freshman and sophomore year, I broke it off with my boyfriend, which wasn't sad at all. 
And I got back to Fox. I had been trying to set Nick up with my friends because I thought he was so great. Even my friends back in Wenatchee, I just thought, this guy's so great. You guys should date him. And so when I went back to Fox that, that sophomore year, we were in the same cohort kind of of this camping trip. We were in res- residence life. And so I still thought of him as the best person I knew. I still thought of him as the best catch for somebody. And I was like, oh, my gosh, he can be my catch. I can do that. Like, I can date him. But before we started dating, I told him, like, my heart is overseas. I need to be I need to be international. I need to work with a different culture than my own. And he understood that. And I told him, I don't want to date anyone that doesn't understand that. And his response was, I can really be a pastor anywhere. He had a heart to become a pastor throughout our first day of dating though I challenged him please go overseas it's 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 hard and he went to the Philippines I went to Brazil at the same time and I wasn't sure what to expect and he came back and he was hooked and ready to go maybe more so than me and we got married in 2004 in 2005 we graduated from Fox and planned to move towards international mission work we headed to Texas to do linguistics sold all of our things and I met with my doctor about my IBS He told me, don't go. This diet over there is not going to be good for your body. He also let me know that pregnancy might be a little bit hard. I didn't care. I just left. We went to Tanzania, sold everything, moved over there for our what we thought was going to be our life. In the first three months, we were going to attend a language school. We moved to this place called Morogoro, Tanzania. Um, But just a couple weeks in, my stomach started acting up really badly. I was in bed every other day. I couldn't go to this language school. Then it started to be every day. And every day I would sit at home underneath a mosquito net and just cry hysterically that this was my life. This was not what I anticipated with moving to Tanzania. I hated the idea of returning back to the States, though, and failing. It felt like a failure. We went to the doctors in the capital to make sure that I actually had to, had to leave and this wasn't some fluke thing. And they said, yes, you need to go back to the States and get this under control, and you should go now. So we packed up all of our stuff. And with our heads down, we moved back to America. I was devastated. Nick was devastated. We arrived in the States in May and felt like complete failures. My sickness had brought us home. When we arrived, our our sending church needed college pastors, so they asked us to join. I said, sure, we can do that. So we weren't sure how long we would need to be there, but my doctor told me to get off all my medicine and start to get some stress-free life. I did that, and a couple months later, I started feeling super tired, and I took a pregnancy test, and I was pregnant with Hannah. I was overjoyed that the doctor had been wrong, that it hadn't been hard for me to get pregnant. God had given us this miracle in the midst of this horrible grief and loss of our life in Tanzania. We took those jobs as college pastors and thrived. My pregnancy with Hannah was really great. I absolutely loved everything about it except for the horrible IBS pain that I got with it. I would double over in pain. I would pass out. It became unbearable. It was only getting worse, and I, but I just kept pressing into that promise that Jesus was with me. One morning, I went to church for a prayer service, and one of our college students that was there, who I love, but he's really intense, and I try and stay away from him at prayer services because he's really intense. He kind of like, like came up to me. I was like, sorry, I got to go to the bathroom because already my stomach was horrible. So I had to go sit in the bathroom and I came back to just sit and lament of like, God, why? And he came over and he's like, no, I need to talk to you. And he said to me, you've fully taken the sickness on as your identity and you kind of like it. 
I was like, no, I don't. I don't like you. And so I turned around so angry and was ready to leave. And the Holy Spirit gave me this check in my spirit that said, turn back around. I came back and I sat with him and he told me, you're kind of liking it. It gives you an out. And I realized, oh my gosh, I've been using this as an out. I don't like hard things. I hate confrontation. And this, as soon as confrontation would come, my stomach would go and I'd be like, I'm out, like gone. So I was so, I was, I was kind of shook by this new revelation. Told him, go. And he prayed for me a little bit and I sat there. And right there, my stomach started moving in this miraculous way. Hannah started moving. My stomach started moving. I was like, what is happening? (sighs) The student couldn't be right. (laughs) But after that prayer and asking for forgiveness about taking that on, something changed. I had been fully healed, but I was too scared to walk in it. I didn't tell Nick for a couple weeks. And then finally, I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm healed. I have not had pain for so long. I started to embrace really hard things then. I started confronting things that I needed to confront. And then Hannah was born, and I was so thankful. We settled into life in Wenatchee and loved our jobs. Raising Hannah was super great to raise around family. My parents were there. My brother was there. My aunt had just moved up with her daughter, who was college-aged, and her husband to Wenatchee. They were a family that we had in California. And I knew my aunt had dealt with depression. So moving to the Northwest, I was super excited for her to be there and really hoping that would take away the depression. Her husband was not a kind man. And he didn't seem to care about her mental health. And around Hannah, the time of Hannah's birth, my aunt had attempted suicide a couple of times. We as a family committed to pour into her and Danielle, my cousin's life. We would invite them over and make sure they were loved and felt loved by us. Danielle had struggled her whole life with social and emotional battles and had never known how to make friends. I took it upon myself to try and get together with her as much as possible, but I was a new mom and a pastor's wife, which took up a lot of my time. In August of 2008, my parents, Nick, Hannah, and I, along with my brother, were shopping at Costco. We were about to go on a camping trip. When I got a phone call, I'll never forget. My uncle called me and calmly said, your aunt's dead and so is Danielle. She killed her, Heidi. She killed Danielle and then killed herself. I need you to come over. Everything kind of started spinning in Costco. My mom was paying at the register and I just held up the phone and said, she needs to come over here and dad, can you finish that? And she needs to talk to him. Her face is something when she heard the news that's forever etched in my mind about my mom. The shock and pain that her only sister was gone, and not just that, but her niece was dead. We got in the car quietly and in shock. As we arrived at the scene, it kind of all became real. Police officers were outside talking to my uncle, who happened to be a police officer himself. He wasn't crying, but talking slowly and calmly to them. My mom so graciously got out of the car and talked with everyone while consoling my uncle, whom we all despised. She got all the details and let me know that my aunt had used my uncle's work gun that he had so graciously left out to shoot my her daughter when she wasn't looking. She died instantly. Then she used the same gun on herself. 
She had called us the night before and left a message at my mom's house saying she was scared that Danielle wouldn't be able to make it in this world without her. She was wondering whether Danielle would be able to make friends, be able to get married because she was so awkward. My mom then came back to the car and let us know that my uncle was going to come stay at her house and begged Nick and I to pack up our stuff and go live with her and my dad for a bit so that she wasn't alone at the house with him. She knew that my uncle only had us as family left, and she needed to reach out. We decided to say yes and packed up our stuff. We arrived back with my uncle pacing back and forth at my parents' house and had no emotions. But then, when he finally stopped walking, he looked at us and said they didn't even check my hands for gunpowder. I could have killed her and nobody would have known. They didn't check my trash or my alibi. The next couple of days were full of learning more things about the story that didn't seem to add up to us, but we didn't know. We were suspecting that my uncle had found his daughter dead and had turned the gun on my aunt, but we had no proof. We started to cry and kind of come out of the shock and just wanted to go home. My mom and brother decided to help him clean the house from the incident, which has forever scarred the two of them. Nick and I continued to be that steady family and trying to encourage my mom to grieve, but my, with my uncle in the house, it was hard. He decided to move back, and we prepared the funeral, and Nick so graciously spoke about the unbelievable joy that my aunt had portrayed before she was depressed. She made us laugh like nobody else could. My mom was trying to forgive my uncle, whether it be forgiving him for driving my aunt so far from who she was to take her life and my cousin's or if he actually killed her. I cannot believe how much compassion my mom gave my uncle in the midst of her pain. I spent the next couple of months working in and out of the guilt I felt for maybe not reaching out enough. I reread emails and listened to voicemails trying to pick out details that would explain why this happened. I sat with my mom as she dealt with the guilt of not finding my aunt good mental health. She blamed herself. This clouded our lives for a long time. It's something, honestly, that I, I haven't, I don't know the answer to. We don't know the answer to what exactly happened. It's something that I'm still working through. I still have so many questions, and there's not, like, a perfect bow at the end of this story. So, we'll move on. It was a horrible, horrible time. But I was able to watch Hannah grow up. Hannah was an awesome little girl. But by eight months, I was exhausted, still not sleeping through the night, never sleeping through the night. But I was overly exhausted, so I decided to take a pregnancy test. And I was shocked that it was positive. Eight-month-old baby, new pregnancy test. My girls were going to be 17 months apart, and I was incredibly terrified. Hannah had been a really hard baby. She hated sleeping, hated eating, didn't want to go to anybody else, but she was super cute. I was still dealing with complications with her birth, and I did not want to go through that again. But God knew what I needed. He gave me Haley, and she was born and seemed to love life from the beginning. She was a smiley, happy baby that brought a bunch of joy to our life. When she was born, though, Hannah became this amazing one-and-a-half-year-old. She started sleeping through the night, and she chose to be happy, and she was the most unbelievable big sister. She loved Haley, and I loved everything about having two kids that close. We enjoyed being a family of four, but started to dream about what going back to Tanzania would look like for us. 
Nick had started to realize that he didn't want to do linguistics anymore and wanted to do discipleship. And so he had started taking teams over from our college group over to Tanzania again and working with Youth with a Mission, which is the one I went to Mexico and Guinea-Bissau with. He told me, you're going to love it, Heidi, but I was not convinced. So I took a trial trip over. There's no way I was going to move my one-year-old and three-year-old over to a place I had never visited. When I got there, it felt like home. The Maasai people that I got to meet were like family. I was sure this is where we were supposed to go. So we came back, told everybody, started the process of fundraising. We had loved our four years in the States, but we were ready to go. Many people were wondering why, when you have a job and two small kids, would you ever leave that to go to Africa? But we just felt so clearly that this was where we were supposed to go, and we were supposed to go now. So we packed up everything in September of 2011 and transported our lives to Arusha, Tanzania. Arusha is the city where, if you've heard of Mount Kilimanjaro and all the safaris and stuff, that's where everybody goes. So I was thinking, lots of American amenities. The village we were going to live in was called Ngaramtoni. It was a youth with a mission base that over, had over 100 East Africans living in it. We were the only Westerners on that base. It consisted of dorms and a children's home and small apartments. When I had gone to visit, 11 months prior, there was running water and good internet and great electricity. When we arrived, the internet had been sold off. The electricity would have power cuts for 10 days at a time, which included the 10 days that we arrived. And the water line had been cut and rerouted to another town. So now there were only two spigots to share between 100 people. We arrived after 29 hours of travel with little, little kids to our little apartment that consisted of buckets of water someone had filled with for us, some fruit, and some buds. Nick and I looked at each other with the same thought. What have we done? The girls were ecstatic. They loved seeing the new things. Our days consisted of meeting new people. We bought our couches and a stove and a fridge. We bought mincemeat off the street, ground beef that I had to pick through for the bones and then decided to just throw it out because I couldn't do it. I couldn't eat that. Nick and I would take turns, though, going into the room and reading the Hunger Games to pretend we hadn't just done this with our lives. <laughs> it was the only way we could make it through those first couple weeks. We were grieving the loss of a life. It was like a death. It was super interesting. I would cry about missing the luxuries of home. I tried cooking things from scratch, but I had not prepared myself for a life without Costco. One morning, we were walking up to the dining hall where we were getting most of our food. And our girls just were crying. They didn't want bread again for breakfast. As we passed our Kenyan director's apartment, they came out and asked us, why are your girls crying? I told them they struggle a bit with the food and I'm lost. I don't know how to cook anything. She brought us in and gave our kids European pancakes, which are crepes, which are so good, um, that were just waiting there. My girls' eyes lit up. They even had syrup. My girls ate better than they had in weeks and we thanked them. I just thought, how am I going to do this? Then we realized we needed help. We started asking people to take us around the little village to show us where to buy fruit and vegetables. They took me to a little store that I didn't even know was there that had tomato paste and spaghetti noodles. And once again, that same minced beef from the same butcher. She assured me, though, it was okay to eat. So I spent a lot of time picking out those bones and we ate it that night. And we had spaghetti. I still have a picture of Haley falling asleep at the table because she was so full for the first time in so long. That dinner had us laughing and talking and feeling like family again. We felt like we could do this. After a little while, students started arriving and Nick started going about his work. He was starting the same discipleship school that I had done in Mexico when I was 18. 
He joined those students and started heading to class every day. As I stayed at home with the girls and played lots of dolls, tea parties, and took lots of walks. The classes were on the base, so we would go meet up with Nick. I had to learn to entertain the girls with very little, but they were super happy. The first couple months, I learned how to do laundry by hand. When to get to the water spigot to get the water we needed before it was gone, which was unfortunately at 5 a.m., how to carry all the water back to my house, but not on my head because I can't do that. Use a gas stove. I had never touched one before. Make pancakes from scratch. Three, sleep through the night throughout all the noises all around. Make sure our house was ready as soon as the electricity shut down. And how to get around our village to find what we needed. I still didn't love it. I was just kind of surviving. Nick, on the other hand, was thriving. And this is why, yeah. <laughs> he picked up Swahili right away. And it was perfect. He was already helping translate. Everyone loved him. He was personable and adapted to the Tanzanian way of life quickly, which meant he had to make time for everyone. His walk from the top of the base down to the bottom, which should have taken two minutes, would take more like an hour because he would stop every person he saw and have a conversation. He was really good with the people. And I envied it. I was stuck at home doing every single chore and trying to keep the girls busy. And so I couldn't spend time learning the language or be out with anybody. I had this idea when we moved that Nick would be working and I would be at home outside doing laundry with my girls and talking with all the other moms that are doing the same thing. I found out quickly that this, is, this idea was not reality. East African moms didn't stay home. They went to do ministry without their children and had a younger teen stay at home. This was the culture on our base. So the teen would stay home and do household chores and take care of the kids. So I went outside with the teenagers, but they wanted nothing to do with me. The moms would look at me as they were all dressed beautifully to go out and do their ministry. And I was dripping sweat, trying to do my laundry on the front porch. And they would kind of glare at me. I didn't understand what I was doing wrong. Nick was, would come home during lunch and help me carry water and start to pin up some laundry. That gave, got even worse looks for me. I found out through talking to and listening to others that I, I am in their eyes was actually being super lazy, staying at home and watching my kids doing laundry, cooking, cleaning, everything I was doing. And I should have been out serving God and leave my kids with someone else. They were appalled that I would let my husband carry any water and that I would let him even touch the laundry. I was being a lazy white woman and they wanted nothing to do with me. That evening I went home and I cried over the dream I once had coming to Tanzania and living with the people. I was never going to have that. One night after about nine months or yeah, nine months in Tanzania, I heard a really weird noise from the kitchen. Nick and I went to check in on, on it and I realized it was the refrigerator. He told me to unplug it. He ran back because the girls woke up and he went back to tuck them back in. I was so tired and I wasn't thinking and I reached behind to unplug it from the converter and my fingers got hold of that metal and a 220 volt took me down. I was on also on concrete floors. <laughs> So I started shaking and screaming and I fell down and Nick and Hannah, who was four at the time, ran in and I started trying to say electrocuted and I got a little bit out to where they knew what I was saying. Hannah ran away as Nick held me and Hannah ran, ran back in after a couple of minutes and said, mom, you're going to be fine. I just prayed for you and Jesus told me you're going to be fine. <laughs> I looked at her and tried to talk to say, thank you, sweetheart. And it came out. <laughs> I couldn't talk. Nick picked me up and took me to bed and said, just go, go rest in what Jesus told Hannah. I tried to go to sleep and was terrified. 
the next couple of days I was checked out by doctors and continued to try and speak. <sighs> Hannah would keep saying, Mom, you're okay. Just rest. People would come to visit and see how I was, and Hannah would stop them on the way in and say, she'll be okay. She's talking funny, but it will be fine. <laughs> After three days, the swelling in my brain started to go down, and I was able to speak legibly, on and off. But Hannah just looked at me with the most clear understanding of what God had spoken to her and said, see, I told you you were fine. She ran through the base telling everyone that just like Jesus had told her, I would be fine. Nick finished his classes and we prayed about what to do next. We came back from furlough and I was sure I wasn't going to miss a thing about Tanzania. I had not established any relationships that meant anything to me. About a month back here, I started feeling so strongly that we needed to go back. I was miserable there, but sure, that was where God called us. Doesn't make a lot of sense. We also were feeling a very big pull towards adoption. We had always talked about adoption, but weren't sure if it was going to work. But in Tanzania, we heard we could do it. So we arrived back in Tanzania after furlough and our, with a new excitement for ministry and an excitement for adoption. After a month in Tanzania, we brought home our son, Nolan. He was eight months old and terrified. We started by fostering him and moving towards adoption. No, bringing home Nolan somehow showed our fellow coworkers that we actually loved Tanzania. People started inviting us into their homes, which had not happened yet. We were falling into the rhythm, rhythms of Tanzania. Nick had just started heading out, in, out, out to the Maasai, who we had hoped to work with. I found Hannah an amazing international missionary school that she loved. And I found some women at the base that I could actually communicate with. We had bought a car. We were able to get around. We found places that I could get really good coffee, like better than here. And swimming, which was fantastic. A fellow missionary had left to go back to South Africa, and she encouraged me to bring someone in to do my laundry and cooking and cleaning. And I was like, no, no one's coming in my house. But she just encouraged me that this is giving someone a job. So I had to push aside my desires and invite Mary into my home. Mary, I miss Mary. <laughs> she had four children herself and was desperately in need of a job. She was older than me. So kind of like an aunt. Um, this lady was an answer to so many prayers in my life. She taught me Swahili. My big kids begged me to leave so that they could stay with her, even though they didn't know the language. She started teaching my kids the language. I would spend my day doing laundry beside her and hear more about the Tanzanian culture. I would teach her how to bake American food while she would make Tanzanian food that my kids actually ate. We got to know each other really, really well. And Mary would start to a, start to a really great season in Tanzania for our family. Teams started to come to our base from all around. International students would come and I kind of found my place to work. I love teaching people how to be in Tanzania and not make the same mistakes I had constantly been making before. After 12 appointments for Nolan at the courts, finally on August 24th, 2014, we got the full approval that Nolan was adopted in Tanzania. It was 16 months of waiting, four or 12 appointments, and Nolan was finally ours. We were so ecstatic. Felt like we were in a great rhythm of life. We started attending an international church, and we started going out to Maasai land more. And we had built, Nick had built these really great relationships with the Maasai that one day they asked us to join a celebration. We went out there with some soda and rice and drove about two hours into the bush in those pictures of, are of the Maasai Boma. When we arrived, we realized that this was a bigger celebration than we knew. They were inviting us to join their family. 
There were shukas, which are Maasai clothing that were beaded beautifully and laid inside of their boma that was made out of mud and cow dung and sticks. They gave us Maasai crowns and pinned all of it, all of their different colors on us. We were taken into two different bomas and dressed appropriately for this. They sewed on beaded anklets and bracelets and got us ready to head out to the ceremony. We would find out later from people that this was super rare among the Maasai to have this ceremony. This was a marriage of two families. They wanted us to take their name, and this was a commitment that we would forever be family. We danced and ate goat from the fire. We prayed and thanked God for this union. We were given our new names and taken into that family. It was a moment I will never forget, and I was so thankful that God had granted us this. It had taken three years to start feeling like Tanzania was home, but we were finally at that point. Three days later, I was driving home from my kid's school, and we drove out of their school onto the main road, and this man was standing in the middle of the road. I had to honk to get him out of the way, and he just stared at me with these eyes that were so full of hatred. He got out of the way, and I started telling the girls, we need to pray for this area. This area is really, like, heavy. I just, I don't like it. So we started praying and then I started teaching them. This is the day the Lord has made. And we started singing that song. Then I realized, all oh, right, we need to, we need some soda and some uh, bread. So we stopped at the side of the road. I got out of the, I got out of the car and went to the, the, the place that had been my ministry at that time, the mamas that I would go see and greet and get my bread from and my sugar from. And I went over to them and greeted them and was happy and came back to my car. And as I reached in for my money, I felt a really big pain in my back. Someone had hit me from the back, and I thought, what is that? And I thought it was one of our Maasai friends wanting a a ride home because we were only about two kilometers from our house, our base. And so I thought, stop hitting me. You don't need to ride that badly. Like, stop hitting me. And as I turned around, there was a gun in my face. The gun had a red circle, so I thought it wasn't real. This guy was the same guy that was in the way when I came down the mountain from my girl's school. He had followed me back to that place. He started yelling at me to give him money, give him money. I looked in my purse and I grabbed some money, thinking this was just an airsoft gun that he had found somewhere. And I gave him the money and I threw my purse back on Haley's lap. I thought it was going to be done with and he would drive off. And then I heard a gunshot. And I saw the bullet drop on the floor. And it's that same thing as in movies, the ding, 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 ding. It was this slow motion. I was terrified. I just started screaming. That's all my money. That's all I have. And he started screaming back. He put the gun on Haley's head, who was locked in her car seat. She couldn't get out. Hannah was ducked down in the window between Haley and the guy yelling at him, Stop it! Hannah is fierce. And I love that about her. And she was yelling. Haley was crying. He had the gun on Haley's head. And I just begged him, no, she's a kid. I'm a mama. Get the gun back on me. And people, I could see people kind of like coming in. And then I heard another gunshot. And it kept happening over and over again. And this lasted for a very long time in the middle of the day in a place I never thought was dangerous. This man kept putting the gun on me, shoving the gun into my head, telling me he was going to kill me. I had the keys to my car where Haley was locked in her car seat in my hand and was holding them so safely, hoping he does not take that car from me. 
It ended up he shot another gunshot. All of these gunshots, I, I, I didn't know where they were going. And he ended up yelling horrible things at me and telling me for sure I was going to die. Then I ended up seeing that there was a guy on a motorcycle behind him. It kind of like the fog lifted and I saw this guy and I just looked at him because I could tell he was part of this clan. I looked at him and I said, hey, I'm a mama in Swahili, just yelling at him. I'm a mama. Don't, don't hurt me. Don't hurt my kids. Please, please, please help me. Take him away from me. This guy looked very high on drugs and very angry. The guy on the motorcycle, though, had a helmet on, so I couldn't see if he was angry. And I just thought this is the only way to reach out. This guy ended up yelling at the guy to please come back to the motorcycle. And as he did that, I was still in my fog. And all I heard was Hannah screaming, Mom, go, go, go. I grabbed my keys that were in my hand, unstuck them, and got in the car and went backwards as fast as I can as this same man turned around as he was going towards his motorcycle to come back. I went backwards, slammed on the brakes before I hit a kid behind me, turned and went down an alley. I watched as this guy drove away behind me with my, with my purse behind him, with his arms raised, saying I did it. I was so angry that he took that from us, not the purse. <laughs> but everything else. My girls were so brave. My healing from this was super tricky. I had a lot of people come by and share their stories. Arusha is full of a ton of seasoned missionaries. And when you live like that, a lot of times these stories happen to you. I was so thankful for that circle of support with the missionaries. They challenged me to actually stay in Tanzania and work through the grief in Tanzania and not run from it. Unfortunately, I felt, but fortunately at the time, Nolan's adoption had not gone through, so we needed to wait six months to get all of his paperwork, so I couldn't leave. But nowhere self felt safe anyway. The guy had ended up going to town and killing a couple women. I had a lot of grief with that. It took six months that I dealt with this horrible grief in Tanzania. We didn't know how to cope, but had a lot of prayer and counseling, and we started making baby steps. But I sat with, sat with God with that grief over the, the loss of innocence of my children. I had so many questions and felt so guilty about why did I live and not those other women. Many East Africans came and told me, God saved you. You're a miracle. He wanted to do something with you. He would never let anything happen to you if you're serving him. Just let it go and stop thinking about it. These comments led me, led me to a deep search of who God is. If God would never let anything bad happen to me, why did this thing happen to me? If it's true that he saved me, then why didn't he save the other women? My main question, though, was why God and what do you want me to do? The Maasai family that we had become family with brought me a goat and an ostrich egg and sat with me in the house. They prayed for me and Maasai, and I just wept. They didn't have any answers, but their presence meant everything I knew they had gone through a ton of trauma in their life, and yet they still saw this and saw my deep wound and prayed for me. Before we headed back to the States for furlough, most of our base thought there was no way we were going to come back. They heard of our trip and just kept saying, you're not moving back. There's no way you're coming back after going back to America. And when we went back to on furlough, people treated us very differently. There was not the normal excitement to hear about our ministry. Everybody was super compassionate towards me, but a lot of questions about, well, do you think maybe this is God telling you to come back to the U.S.? Isn't it safer here? 
that felt incredibly wrong to me. Why are, why are we the ones that kind of run away when things get hard? It just didn't feel right in my heart. My mind was not even close to being healed from this event, but my heart was still listening to Jesus and his clear call on our lives. We started being able to talk to the girls about the fact that God never said we wouldn't struggle or go through trials. I couldn't promise safety, but I couldn't promise safety no matter where we lived. We prayed as a family and felt so clearly that we needed to go back to Tanzania. Our time in Tanzania was not over. When Nick and I went to counseling at the end of our time at furlough, I just felt God changed my heart. I had never found a love for Tanzania before this. And all of a sudden, I loved Tanzania after this event. It was so unbelievable God's faithfulness in that that I got a tattoo of Africa on my foot. I was more excited to go back to Tanzania this time than I ever had been. We arrived back in Tanzania with an eight-year-old, six-year-old, and three-year-old. And we reached out and, and felt that we wanted to adopt another one. Sounds a little crazy, but we did. And so the courts passed through it really quickly, and we became a family of six. Neil joined our family, and it just felt perfect. I started getting more involved in ministry out to the Maasai with Nick and brought the boys along for the ride. We would see giraffes as we headed out to work. It was amazing. The girls thrived in their school, and the boys loved being among the Maasai people, playing in the dirt while I got to build really great relationships with the Maasai mamas. I saw that I had a place to help the young girls get into school before they could get pregnant out there. I started feeling empathy for these girls and what they experienced every day. I only once had been threatened by a man, and they experienced fear like that every day of their lives. I started spending more time with these young women and hearing their heart. When they realized who they were in Jesus, it was amazing how their countenance changed. They would look at me in the eyes and know they had worth. They would laugh and giggle when they had a chance. These young Maasai girls became my passion. I wanted them to know Jesus because he is the only one that can breathe joy in the midst of their everyday trauma. He did miracles among the Maasai, and we got to experience them. Nick had started a discipleship school for the older Maasai, and we learned so many stories about how God brought them out of witchcraft and the joy they felt knowing him. The worship times in that Maasai DTS were so filled with the Holy Spirit that the concrete floors were wet, just so wet from the weeping over how much they felt loved by Jesus and how much they loved Jesus. There were times that they actually were persecuted and it was real and intense. Instead of running, they stood up to their persecutors and physically got hurt, but were so spiritually renewed. I'd never seen that. They were so proud to serve a God that loves them and wanted to share that with everyone. It was hard for us to understand all the cultural parts, so we felt very clearly before we went that we were going to raise up Messiah leaders to lead their people. We didn't understand the culture, and we were so far from understanding it. Instead, we wanted to be there to encourage them that God loves them, and he was calling them into this relationship. These Messiah challenged me in every way to love God in spite of my circumstances. Our family loved them very deeply. We would sit and have their tea. It was a really sweet relationship. During this time, we've developed really great relationships with other missionary families. There were six other families that had gone to this international school, and we became very close with all of them. The government, though, had started to change a little bit and was denying international visas. We had to start thinking about the future and started asking God what he had for us. We wanted to stay in Tanzania, but the ministry Nick had brought up was already passed off to a Maasai leader. This meant either starting a new ministry in Tanzania or heading somewhere else to serve. Nick and I met one day to pray. Nick shared of his desire to be a senior pastor in America. 
my response was just tears. America always brings tears to my eyes. I finally felt like Tanzania was home and I loved our life. Our kids were growing up in such a beautiful place, knowing the strength of diversity and spending their time outdoors exploring. I was not okay with thinking about this idea. But we, Nick just was so gracious and said, so we wait. We just wait and see if anything's brought our way. The next day, literally the next day, we got an email from a senior pastor in Newburgh that said, hey guys, can we chat? No. <laughs> I was literally in shock. I sat in the hallway as Nick and this pastor talked. He was feeling very clearly that Nick was supposed to come back and take his position. He wasn't sure why he felt this, but knowing we were going to be in Tanzania for years to come, because we had told him several times we're going to be in Tanzania for a long time, but he just felt a push in the spirit to reach out. I grieved the knowledge then and there that we were going to be leaving. I tried everything to find a reason why this wouldn't work, and I wasn't going to move. Nick encouraged me to think of this as being missionaries to the States. I don't want to do that. So slowly after a lot of prayer and meeting with close friends and asking for them to seek God about this, I started seeing the ways God was orchestrating this move. Four of the six families that we were really close to started letting us know that their, their ministry was shifting. They were leaving. This would help our kids in transition, but it still was hard. Through the next six months, we prepared to leave Tanzania after being there eight years. This was the only home my kids knew. Within the last couple of months, things fell into place. We were able to buy a house without ever seeing it, thanks to our amazing, my amazing mother-in-law. The miracle came, though, when we found out that Haley, who she had been ha- being, getting to be a pen pal with, with knowing coming back to America, lived next door. We did not know that. Our church rallied together and helped at our house to get it ready. For when we arrived, when they did this, they found a baseball in the backyard of the house that we bought that belonged to Newburgh Free Methodist Church, the church we were coming to serve. This was crazy. Little things like this happened over and over again that it felt clear. In October of 2019, very end of October, we arrived at the church that accepted us with really open arms. We were excited for what was to come, but I grieved the loss of Tanzania. Nick dove into the work while the kids and I tried to figure out life here. Going to the store was a different experience here. Driving was a different experience, though I did realize that I was able to drive without fear. In Tanzania, every time I went into my car, I had to double check everything to make sure I was safe. I finally was able to get in the car without having to do that. I counted that as a gift from God, and I also counted living close to family. I loved the fact that my, my kids could see their family and I could see the family without having, to, without having to space it out between two years or four years. But honestly, this has been the hardest move for me. I broke my foot twice in the last year. That was not fun. Get back and Nick has an appendicitis. We went through a really rough year. I've grieved that life of living in Tanzania every day. COVID was hard. I know it was hard for everyone. My kids were at home, and schooling was a challenge. Church was challenging. This year brought a lot of anxiety to our family and a lot of stress. I think I had imagined coming to Tanzania and finding my people and my community easier than it had been in Tanzania, but I find that it's not the case. As I sit in the pain of losing my life in Tanzania, I have asked God what he has for me here. And when I sat in that, I found this ministry called Safe Families for Children. 
And I found that was an amazing way to form a community here and reach out to families that are desperate for help for community. My work with Safe Families has given me a great way to connect with those I may not have had a chance to connect with. My heart breaks for those people that don't have family and community, which are all of the Safe Families families. This is my mission field, but it's 10 times harder than anything I've experienced. So throughout my story, he never said it was going to be easy, and I don't expect it to be easy, but he said he would always be with me and walk with me if I invite him into that relationship. I'm so thankful that that was the constant that I had in my life. Looking over my story, I can see God's hand so clearly loving us and guiding us and holding us when things are hard and cheering us on when things were, were great. He has been the one that has been committed to me and has never left my side, and I'm incredibly grateful. So thank you for listening to my story. Well, ladies, during this final song, we want to just acknowledge that all of you have a story. Every story is different. Every story is valuable. And, and we know that some of you maybe right now are in a particularly challenging chapter of your story. This is our, this is our prayer for you, the lyrics of this song. So I hope you can just hear that. And I'm going to close us and, and thank you for coming. Lord, we're so grateful that we get to have this beautiful space. Heidi's story reminds us of a lot of things we take for granted here. And her story reminds us that we can cross bridges and be in relationship with people who are different and that you have created all these beautiful cultures. Lord, her story reminds us that there is a mission field far, far away, but there is a mission field next door and that we're here to love one another and serve one another. And we can't do it without you. Thank you for the relationship that you offer for us, Lord, and for anybody who's just lonely or longing for that relationship, would you be with that woman tonight? May every word uh, sung tonight in this final song just, just touch the hearts of the women here. This is our prayer, and we pray this in your name. Lord bless you and keep you this fish out of pot and be gracious to you lord turn his face towards you and give you peace lord bless you and keep you these fish shine upon and be gracious to you
for thousands, generations in your family, and your children, and your children, and their children. May his favor be upon you, and a thousand generations in your family, and your children, and their children, and their children. May his presence go before you, and behind you, and beside you. amazing and there are no better lyrics than that for us to end on thank you ladies so much for coming i hope you enjoyed story night and for those of you who came to your first one i hope you come back to more and be blessed good night the story night podcast a ministry of calvary mac for more women's stories visit calvarymac.com women women